I remember the first time I ever visited a cemetery. Uh, I stumbled on it by, by accident. Let me tell you a little bit of the backstory. Occasionally, as we were, when we were growing up, we would go visit my great-grandparents who lived on a farm in eastern Kentucky. And it, it was quite a, a transition from someone that was being raised in central Florida to visiting my great-grandparents because they had no indoor plumbing. Uh, you got your water in the kitchen by, uh, by pumping a handle that would bring the water up from a, uh, from a well. And so I would often go out exploring, and they had, they had a, a, not a forest, but a, they had a hill behind them with lots of trees. And so I would venture a little ways from the house, and the few times we visited, I would get a little bit more courageous and venture a little bit further away. And lo and behold, on one of those visits, I stumbled upon what I assume was a family cemetery, someone else's family. And so like any uh, eight or nine-year-old boy, I jumped the fence and went in to see what, uh, what the gravestones read and, and to explore just a little bit. And that was my first exposure to, to cemeteries. I really wasn't very impressed. I've got friends who are historians, and they love on vacations to go and visit cemeteries, old cemeteries, historic cemeteries. Uh, it really doesn't do that much for me on vacation, and, and uh, I appreciate their interest in it. Occasionally, Jalen and I, when we're in Titusville, Florida, uh, the town that Jalen was born in and where I was raised, we'll go to the cemetery where my mom and dad and my brother are buried. And we will go just to just clean thing, things up just, just a little bit, and... Whenever we go, I have a series of emotions that, that seem to flood my soul. Uh, sometimes I just feel regret. I feel regret that, that I didn't say some things that I, I wish I had said, and, and I said some things I wish I hadn't said. Uh, sometimes I have a sense of, of sadness uh, there couldn't be anybody better to have with me when I experience that than, than Jay Lynn. She knows exactly what to say and, and what not to say. Often I, I feel a sense of gratitude. I, I just think about the fact that, that I was really an unlikely person to be saved. So all of those things go through my mind when I, when I visit the cemetery where my father and mother and brother are buried. You know, the story we're going to read about today took place in a cemetery, an ancient cemetery, a cemetery that's unlike the cemeteries you and I will normally visit. The cemeteries that we visit, usually people are buried in the ground or in some kind of sarcophagus. In Jesus' day, in first century Palestine, people often dug out of the side of a hill and, and they would construct a, a family grave plot inside, the, inside that uh, tomb on the side of a hill. In fact, we might say as we're, as we're getting ready to read Mark 16, 1 through 8, that the greatest event in human history took place in a cemetery. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, 
Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? And looking up, they noticed the stone had been rolled away, for it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. But he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See, here is the place where he had been laid. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You know, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is at the very heart of Christian orthodoxy. In fact, if Jesus Christ were not raised from the dead, Christianity is a false religion. Christianity is no more true than Islam or Hinduism. No more true than Buddhism. No more true than Jehovah Witness or Mormonism. That is, if Jesus was not raised bodily from the grave, Christianity is a religion built on a lie. And eventually, it will be found to crumble. Al Mohler said this about the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead separates Christianity from all mere religion. Whatever its form, Christianity without the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is merely one religion among many. So what Dr. Moeller is saying, it's ground zero for the authenticity of Christianity. And yet most historians and most scholars denounce the idea that Jesus was raised bodily from the grave. In fact, this is what one scholar wrote about the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus lived on in the hearts of followers, but he did not physically rise from the dead. Taken down from the cross, his body was probably buried in a shallow grave and may have been eaten by wild dogs. That's the settled position of secular scholarship about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To us, it sounds shocking, but that's the position of academia. Listen to what another scholar wrote. So let us say quite specifically, the tomb of Jesus was not empty, but full, and his body did not disappear, but rotted away. Gerhard Ludman was a significant historian and scholar at Vanderbilt University. And that was his settled disposition and settled conclusion about the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He went from what we would consider extreme liberal Christianity to becoming an atheist by the time he finished his academic career. Well, the most important story 
And the most important life is found at a cemetery. And Mark describes the events. In fact, what we notice in the opening verses is a grief observed. Hopelessness and despair. We can only imagine the agony that was going through the hearts and the minds of these women when they made their way to the tomb of Jesus. They're on the way to anoint Jesus' body. Now, Jesus' body had been anointed on Friday afternoon after it had been taken down from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And if you go to John's gospel, they did a thorough job. They did an unbelievable job of anointing and preparing Jesus' body for burial. They wanted him to have an honorable burial. So, so what are these women doing? What are these women thinking by going to the tomb early on Sunday morning to anoint a body that's already been anointed? You know, sometimes grief does strange things to people. When we lose someone that we dearly love, we find ourselves at times crying at the most unlikely moments. Some incidental event will take place and it will, it will spark a memory in our mind and it will bring a, a tear to our, to our eye and a sadness to our hearts. Maybe the women were just trying to, to soothe the pain and the agony of having their dreams evaporated before their eyes when Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus died, hope died. When Jesus died, the future ended. They had been promised a kingdom, a kingdom that would never end. And they had been led to believe that the man that they loved and followed was indeed the Son of God, that he was the Jewish Messiah. He was the fulfillment of all of the prophecies the Old Testament had pointed toward as it related to a son of David. And when he breathed his last, all of that, all of that dissipated. Now just anguish and hopelessness. C.S. Lewis wrote a book after the death of his wife. C.S. Lewis didn't marry until he was in his 40s. And after his wife died, he wrote a book entitled A Grief Observed. And this is what C.S. Lewis said about death. The death of a beloved is an amputation. Every time the family gathers, there's somebody not gathered there. Every time the family celebrates, somebody's missing. It's like the severing of a limb. There's always the constant reminder that you're missing an arm or a leg. Now, the same is true when you lose someone that you love. One of the people that are mentioned as going to the tomb is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is such an interesting character in the Bible such a beautiful person. But her life wasn't always beautiful. In fact, her life was a nightmare. Her, night, her, her life was a life of horror before she met Jesus. Luke chapter 8 verses 1 through 3 tell us that Mary Magdalene once had been possessed by seven demons. Think about it. 
seven demons. What kind of life would a person have to live to be inhabited by seven demons? And what kind of life would you live after that? Her life was a horror movie that she lived out in reality every single day. But Luke tells us in Luke chapter 8 that Jesus cast the demons out of her. Jesus set her free. What a dramatic transformation it must have been to go from being a demonized woman to being a woman set free. To be a woman whose life was characterized by darkness and pain, to, be a, to being a woman whose life was flooded with the light of the gospel, uh, the light of the Son of God. And then to have him taken away after she had put all of her hopes and, and dreams and aspirations of living for God and being taught by Him and, and to having His life snuffed out at a young age. It's like deja vu all over again. As they make their way to the, to the tomb, uh, they remember that there's a large stone that's been rolled in front of the tomb. It would have taken several men to move it. Now, the opening of an ancient tomb would have been somewhere about three, three and a half feet in height. But if you didn't cover the entry to the tomb, then wild dogs and animals would, would devastate the body, the corpse, and grave robbers would, would steal whatever they could possibly lay their hands on. And so, so that the graves would not be desecrated, they, they put a large stone. Just as they're thinking about the fact, you know, we forgot about the stone. We didn't bring any men around, to, any men to help us move the stone. They, they look and notice the stone has been moved. Now, they'll discover the stone was not moved to, keep Je to let Jesus out. The stone was moved to let the women in. And they made their way inside the, the tomb, and their discovery was phenomenal. They encounter an angel. In fact, I want you to notice in verse 5 and 6 a heavenly proclamation. The angels are interpreting what has taken place for the women. The, the women are needing the pieces of the puzzle put together like anyone would need them put together. The, the grave slab where Jesus' body would have been laid is barren. Where's the body? The last they seen or have seen of Jesus, he, he had died on the cross. And so they interpret for them, the one that was crucified is now alive. He's not here. He has been, he has been raised from the dead. The angels, the angels who need no salvation are the first evangelist of Jesus' resurrection. The first people to declare Jesus Christ raised from the dead are not sinners who needed a savior, uh, but angels who needed no salvation. And then in verse 7 and 8, uh, we see the resurrection message is a message of hope for the hopeless. In the resurrection message, he not only informs the women that, that Jesus is alive, that he is going to meet the disciples in Galilee. They are to go and deliver that message to the disciples. But he includes the name of Peter, which is interesting. 
He had at that time 11 disciples since Judas had already committed suicide and had not yet been replaced. So there are 11 disciples. Go tell my disciples and Peter. Why Peter in particular? Why Peter indeed? Well, you remember the last time Peter is mentioned in the biblical story prior to the resurrection, he's in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. After Jesus was arrested in the garden, he was dragged like a common criminal before the Sanhedrin. Rather than meeting in the Sanhedrin hall where the trial should have been held, they're meeting in the home of Caiaphas. Rapidly gathered together in the middle of the night, cold, cool, April evening, actually the middle of the night. Uh, Peter maneuvers his way into the courtyard of the high priest and goes right up to one of the campfires and begins to warm himself. As the light from the campfire radiates and illuminates the face of Peter, someone says, weren't you, weren't you with him in the garden? I, I don't even know what you're talking about. A little bit later, someone says, aren't you one of his disciples? He says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Finally, just before Jesus is convicted of blasphemy, someone says, you're one of his disciples. I saw you there. And he says, I swear to God, I don't know this man. He took an oath in God's name that he did not know Jesus. The, the interesting thing is Luke tells us, as he's saying it, Jesus hears him and their eyes meet. Jesus is looking at him. He's looking at Jesus, and before he realizes it, he says, I swear to God, I don't know the man. Peter's eyes were filled with fear of being recognized. I can only imagine that Jesus' eyes were filled with kindness, compassion. Peter immediately ran into the darkness and wept uncontrollably. He was a broken man. The testimony of women having seen angels is not going to convince Peter that there's any hope for him. How could there be hope for him? Who could do anything so deplorable, so horrific, as to betray Jesus and have Jesus hear him and actually see him? He had been Jesus' friend the spokesperson for the 12. Nothing short of a personal encounter with Jesus Christ could restore Peter. Luke, in Luke chapter 24, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that's exactly what happened. That's how gracious and kind Jesus is. People sometimes wonder, I could never be forgiven for what I've done. I'm too far gone. I've run too far away. I just can't, I can't be forgiven. But if Jesus can hear Peter say, I swear to God, I don't know the man. And when Jesus and Peter met after the resurrection, I can't, I can't fathom what it must have been like for him to be restored by Jesus like he was. 
Well, the women, the women flee the tomb, and Mark only gives us a part of the story. Listen to, to Matthew chapter 28, verses 7 through 10. The angels say to the women, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. And behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. The women saw the risen Jesus before the disciples did. The disciples were in hiding. They were cowards. They were hiding in fear for their lives. The women, well, they made their way to the empty tomb because Jesus' body deserved an honorable burial. And so as they are fleeing the tomb, the women encountered Jesus on the way. It says Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. So this wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't a vision. Sometimes after people have lost someone they've loved, they may be in the mall or the market, and, and, and they see off to the side that, could that, is that, is that my brother? And then the person turns and you realize, like, that's not my brother. It couldn't be my brother. That's not my mother. People sometimes have, have visions of loved ones after they die. The grief is so deep, so real. They, they will hallucinate things at times. This is no hallucination. This is no vision. Hallucinations and visions can't be touched. They wrap their arms tightly around him. They worship him. Now, Jews could only worship God. That says something about what these women already believe about Jesus. And Jesus receives their worship. And so the women encounter Jesus just a short distance from the cemetery. Well, we have to ask ourselves, does it really matter? Does it really matter if Jesus was raised bodily from the grave? Because Christianity is a beautiful religion. It's a beautiful story. Uh, maybe, the, maybe the resurrection story is just fabricated. It's still a beautiful story. Does it really matter? Well, listen to what Tim Keller says. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, writes, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you must accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hinges is not whether or not you like his teaching, or I would say parenthetically, whether it's a beautiful story or not but whether or not he rose from the dead. This is what the apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is in vain. You are still in your sins. 
If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitied. There's nothing laudatory about following a religion that is a lie. But we know that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. We know that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. We know that while all other religions offer false hope, Christianity offers the only true hope. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he has, the church has a mandate to take the gospel across the street and around the world to believe the gospel message of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and to keep it to ourselves contradicts that message. He said, go tell my brethren. And what Jesus said to the women that day is still true of us. We should tell family and friends and neighbors and co-workers, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's been raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. There is coming a day when he will return and he will establish an eternal kingdom where there will no longer be any sickness and heartache and pain and tears and all sin will be eliminated. That's the Jesus that we believe in. The Jesus that died in our place and the Jesus was, that was raised for our justification. If we confess we believe the resurrection, then we should live a resurrection life. Now, we all have indwelling sin, and we all have many areas in our lives where we need to become more and more Jesus-like. There's a lot of repentance that takes place in our lives every day. But if we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, we should seek to live a life commensurate with that message. Pseudo-Christianity says you can have Jesus and live life the way that you want to live it. Uh, but that's not the Christianity of the Bible. Now, the final thing that I would say is, is this. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. I can remember the first time someone shared with me about the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the gospel message. You've heard me say it before. I was 19 years of age. I was sitting in a minister's study. I had made an appointment and went in to talk to him because I wanted to be a Christian, but I didn't know what one was, and I had absolutely no idea how people became Christians because I didn't have any Christian people in my life at that time. And after I shared that with him, he asked me a couple of simple questions. Bill, would you like to become an entirely new person and be forgiven of all of your sins and, when, and be assured that when you die, you will spend eternity with God? I only thought about it for a few seconds, but it, it seemed like it was several minutes. And I, and I replied, yes, I absolutely do. He said, Bill, have you ever prayed before? And I said, Robbie, I've, I... I've never prayed before. I've never prayed out loud before, that's for sure. He said, Bill, I want to help you. I want to help you give your life to Jesus. 
He said, I'm going to share with you some thoughts. You, you, you pray what you want to pray. You pray what's in your heart, but you tell God that you're a sinner because you're confessing something to God that he already knows, but it's good for you to hear you. It's good for you to hear yourself say it. And then I want you to tell God, if you mean it, that you're putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for your sins. I said, well, do I need to change my life up? He said, that's not for you to worry about. You're not saved by getting yourself ready to be saved. You're saved by receiving the gospel message. You're saved by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You leave the transforming part to him. And so I still remember, as I've told you many, many times, 19 years of age, getting on my knees in front of his couch. There's a mural on his wall of Jesus in the garden. And I prayed the most simple prayer that I think has ever been prayed. Lord, I need help. I'm a sinner. Please save me. Something like that. And I tell you, something happened in me. It didn't happen. Something happened immediately that I was forgiven of all of my sins and dwelt by his spirit, clothed in his righteousness. I wasn't aware of all that going on. But I began to see my life slowly change outwardly. I didn't realize how changed I was inwardly. But God began to change my life outwardly as a result of how he had changed me inwardly. You may be here today and you may be wondering, Pastor, I'm too far gone. I'm just too far gone. You don't know what I did last night, Pastor. I don't know what you did. I don't know where you were. God knows what you did. God knows where you were. But God says, I love you. I'll save you. you say, Pastor, if it was just last night, that would be one thing. But I've lived, I've, lived, I've lived for years running from God, opposed to God. You can't outrun God. If you will pray a prayer like I prayed, Father, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Jesus is the only way that I can be right with you. I believe Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sin. Be my Savior and Lord. That's an exchange worth making. Your sin for his righteousness. You're giving up hell for heaven. You're giving up a life of self-gratification for the life of God. I'm going to ask if you'll stand and let me lead us in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you today for the beauty of the cross. We thank you for the glory of the resurrection. We thank you for the message of the gospel. For those of us who are here who have believed it and have trusted in it, continue to transform us. We know we, are, we, know we are not who we will be, but, but continue to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. And for those who are here who don't know Jesus, do for them what you did for us. We did not deserve it, nor do they. But save them as you saved us. In Jesus' name. Amen.